Hello, and welcome to the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. One of, and perhaps the, earliest translations of the biblical texts is the Septuagint, an early Greek Tanakh. The Pentateuch translation found within is the subject of legend in both the Talmud and the letter of Aristeas, but there are also somewhat later translations of the other portions of Tanakh. This collection of books is more expansive than the Masoretic Nach, and the books vary in how directly they translate the Hebrew text. Many of them likely knew different Hebrew versions than those behind the Masoretic. Because of this, some of the books actually contain parabiblical additions. The most famous of these additions are those found in Esther and Daniel, which are considered to be their own apocryphal books, but a few other books contain additions as well. Some of them were likely written separately, but some were probably written into the text by the translators. It is worth noting that many of the books translated the Hebrew relatively liberally, and so have some words in various places not present in the Miseratic, but that do not constitute significant additions, so I will not be discussing them on this episode. The first of these additions I'll be discussing are those found in Malachim Aleph, 1 Kings, or Three Regum, as it is called in the Septuagint. As the books of Samuel and Kings are considered one series of four books rather than two separate sets of twos. These editions are unique in that they are composed almost entirely of material found elsewhere in the book. Sometimes these verses have been moved and do not appear where they would be in the Miseratic, but other times they are simply duplicated. Because there is very little new material, it is hard to precisely date these editions although some of the language in the details suggests an early date, possibly the 2nd or even late 3rd century BCE. It is unclear what the purpose of these additions was, as for the most part, they do not fit with, and occasionally even contradict, their surroundings. They sometimes share the themes throughout, which may indicate they were selections of verses collected by theme, like those found in Qumran, but were at some point placed back arbitrarily into the text. The first two of these editions are both found in chapter 2 of Malchim Aleph. The first precedes the discussion of the death of Shimei, the man who cursed David when he was on the run. Appropriately, it retells the story of Shimei to provide context for his execution, but also includes a number of other details from elsewhere in the text seemingly at random. The next of these editions immediately follows the story of Shimei's death and discusses Shlomo's glory his various borders and possessions. This addition may serve as an epilogue to the story of his ascension to the throne so that a reader reading just this portion of the text would get a sense of the general so story of Shlomo. The next edition is found ten chapters later following the account of the splitting of the kingdom and similarly discusses Shlomo, this time with a focus on praising him. This edition probably functioned as something of a lament over the united monarchy and Shlomo, much like the lament of Shaul or others found throughout the text. The final edition in Kings takes place between the discussion of Omri, the king of Israel, and Ahab, the king of Israel, both of whom were considered wicked kings. It focuses on Jehoshaphat, a righteous king of Judah. This text was probably added to contrast these kings against each other and remind the reader what constitutes a good king in the eyes of God. The purpose of the additions in Kings largely remains unknown, 
but it does reflect the scribal and editing traditions found throughout the Septuagint and perhaps even those involved in these texts' initial reactions. The methodology used here sheds light on the fluid editing process elsewhere in biblical text and translation. The next set of additions I'll be discussing are the two found in the Septuagint version of Eov, Job. They were probably composed in the 2nd or 1st century BCE by different authors. The first follows the description of Eov's misfortune and increases the dialogue in the text spoken by Eov's wife. In it, she describes to Eov the depths of their misfortune and asks him to curse God and die, just as his friends will ask later. This edition may reflect a version of Eov that was used as a dialogue or Hellenistic play, explaining the added dialogue for a minor character and the repetition of what was just described by the narrator. This interest in Hellenistic plays based on biblical accounts is also reflected in the Exegogue, a play by Ezekiel the Tragedian about the Exodus. This edition serves as one of our very few witnesses to an interest and perhaps whole lost literary genre from the Alexandrian Jewish world of antiquity of Hellenistic plays based on the Bible. The other edition in this text is seemingly unrelated. It is at the very end of the book. It promises that Eov will be resurrected and places him among a detailed lineage of Edomite kings and their cities, also describing his friends as kings. This edition reflects the discussion of Eov's provenance found in rabbinic discussions of the text, which often seek to reconcile his seeming foreignness with his knowledge of the Judean god. Placing him in the descent of Avraham but not Yaakov explains this contradiction, and also reflects the interest in Esau's descendants found elsewhere in the Parabiblica, like Jubilees. The additions to Daniel are considered together as their own book in the Apocrypha and are relatively well known. They reflect the broad interest in extra-biblical Daniel stories reflected in Qumran and possibly even predating the redaction of this section of the book itself. Perhaps the best known of these stories is the book of Shoshana, or Susanna, which is often inserted as a prologue to Daniel. It was probably written in the 2nd or 3rd century BCE, in either Hebrew or Greek. While it has some seemingly Semitic wordplay, it also shows familiarity with Greek poetry and the idea of Jewish law as a powerful tool for general philosophical morality, which is a more Hellenistic focus. The chapter describes the eponymous Shoshana, who is a righteous Jewess married to a prominent Jew. Two wicked elders see her and desire her. Interestingly, in their descriptions, the book quotes an earlier text, an early example of the style of scripture quoting scripture, which would become very prominent in the New Testament. The elders confide in each other and decide to try to seduce her. They hide in her garden and wait for her to bathe. They then approach her and threaten her that if she does not lie with them, they will testify falsely against her that she has had an affair. Shoshana decides that she'd rather risk their ire than God's, so she calls out, and the elders also begin to shout their account. The next day, the elders bring forth testimony to try to get her killed, claiming that she was with a man who got away. Because they are elders, people believe them and are prepared to condemn Shoshana to death. She cries to God, and Daniel, spurned by God, stands and shouts that the testimony is false. He has them separated and questions them independently. He reveals that they disagree 
on what tree the events occurred under, and therefore they are false witnesses and he condemns them to death, using wordplay on the kinds of trees they say it is. Interestingly, in condemning these men, Daniel articulates a correlation of wickedness with the days preceding him, contrary to more, the more standard Jewish notion of increasing wickedness with time. The elders are killed, and Daniel gets a reputation among the people. The next edition is the Prayer of Azariah and the Three Youths, a collection of prayers inserted into the narrative of Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah being thrown into the furnace found in the Mesoratic Daniel. The first is a song by Azariah, and the second is a song by all three of them. These songs bear structural similarities to many of the Psalms. In Azariah's prayer, he praises God for justice and asserts that all of their sufferings are just punishment for their sins, but prays nonetheless for deliverance, regardless on account of God's mercy and glory and the righteousness of the fathers. These sentiments may be a specific response to the persecution either before or during the Maccabean Revolution in the 2nd century BCE, which is likely when this text was written. This prayer is separated from the next by a brief account of the divine being saving the youths and burning the Babylonians, which interestingly specifies that it was an angel, as the idea of God having a physical form would have been controversial at the time. The Song of the Three Youths is more formulaic and may be older than the edition in general. It is a drawn-out song of praise that blesses God and encourages the reader to do the same. Only at the very end does it specify itself to the event where it is being recited, which may indicate that that part was added later to make the prayer fit more smoothly with its context. Both this and the previous prayer were often used liturgically in antiquity and are still in use in some Christian communities. Both this and the next edition, Baal and the Dragon, are present in the Aramaic in the medieval chronicles of Yerachmiel. However, these versions are more likely translated from the Greek or Latin rather than the original Hebrew. The last of the additions to Daniel, Bell and the Dragon, concerns Daniel exposing fraud idols. The first of these idols is called Bell, the equivalent of the more familiar Semitic Baal. The Babylonian king provides plentiful sacrifice daily of food and drink and takes their disappearance by this idol as an affirmation of its genuineness. Daniel does not worship the idol and insists it is only physical and cannot eat anything. The king arranges a challenge by locking food in the temple to see if it is really eating or not and swears to kill either Daniel or the priests of Bel, depending on the result. The priests are unconcerned as they plan to eat the food by entering through a floor hatch, but Daniel lays ashes down on the floor. They go in to take the food at night and the next day, the king, seeing the food gone, initially believes Bell to have eaten it. Daniel then points out the footprints in the ashes leading to the hatch, and the king, realizing what happened, kills the priests and lets Daniel destroy the idol. The king then instructs Daniel to worship a dragon, which could either be another idol or literal, given the nature of Daniel literature and the beasts therein. But Daniel promises that he can kill it without even using a sword or club like any animal. The king gives him a chance, and he accomplishes this by feeding it cakes of tar, which cause it to burst. Seeing this, the Babylonians demand Daniel be handed over, and the king complies under this demand. The final story is either based on or a retelling of 
the more familiar lion's den narrative found in Daniel. They throw him into the lion's den, but an angel instructs the prophet Habakkuk to bring food to Daniel and transports him there. Habakkuk gives him the food and Daniel eats it. This may be an attempt to tie Daniel in with the more established prophetic figures, as the book of Daniel was likely among the last to be accepted as scripture. The king comes to mourn Daniel, but sees him alive in the den. So he praises God, pulls him out, and casts his plotters in instead, where they are eaten. The last book of the Septuagint that contains substantive additions is Esther. There are six of these additions, usually labeled A through F by scholars for clarification. Additions A and F form an introduction and conclusion to the book, respectively, and were likely written by the same author in Hebrew. Addition C relates prayers made by Mordechai and Esther, and addition D is a longer account of Esther's appearance before the king. These were probably written by different authors, also in Hebrew. Addition B and addition E are the decrees made by Haman and the counter-decree by Ahasuerus, respectively and were probably written by a single author in Greek. The additions were, for the most part, composed in the 2nd century BCE, and the Greek text of Esther was completed shortly after, in the 2nd or 1st century BCE. The first edition opens with an account of Mordechai having a dream. He sees a great earthquake and two dragons preparing to fight, and at their roaring, the nations of the world prepare to attack the righteous nation. The nation cries out, and a river comes, bringing with it light, at which the humble overtake the honored. Mordechai wakes and determines that this dream was a revelation from God, and attempts to understand it. This is the first of many instances in these editions where God's influence is added into the text to compensate for its absence in the Hebrew text, where God's name is not mentioned at all. A brief account of Mordechai's discovery of the plot against the king concludes this edition. The second edition is ostensibly a copy of the decree made by Haman in the king's name to wipe out the Jews. It states that the king wanted to make the kingdom safer, so Haman, who was praised, told him that the Jews have their own laws and do not follow the king, and therefore must be eliminated to achieve unity in the kingdom. They are therefore to be all slaughtered. Interestingly, these complaints are very similar to the allegations that faced the Jewish community in Alexandria in antiquity which may have been the place of origin of this edition. The third edition contains two prayers, one made by Mordechai and one by Esther, before she appears before the king. Mordechai's prayer praises God and implores God to save Israel, both because of their covenant and because they praise God. Mordechai also explains that he did not bow to Ammon not to endanger Israel, but to avoid placing man over the divine an explanation necessary because there hadn't really been a Jewish precedent to not bow to kings, as the text may suggest. Esther, before beginning her prayer, changes into clothes of mourning and humbles herself. She gives a brief account of Israel's abandoning of God for idolatry, but asks that they be saved anyway. She asks that God make her able to sway the king and to save her from her fear, promising that she has kept herself apart from the sins of the palace. This edition also represents the theme of tying the book back to God, both in that they pray to God and in that they are portrayed as reliant on God, as compared to the original text, in which the heroes are more so self-acting standard. The fourth edition follows this one immediately and may have shared an author, 
although the style is certainly different. It describes the process and details of Esther's trip to the king, emphasizing the material wealth present. Initially, he appears angry with her, and she falls faint on the floor. At this point, God changes the king's heart, and he instead tries to comfort her, assuring she will not die, as the law does not apply to her, but only to his subjects. She compares him to an angel of God before beginning her request present in the original text. Once again, this addition ties the book and its characters closer to God in contrast with the original text. The fifth edition is ostensibly the decree by Ahasuerus countering Haman's earlier decree. It begins by describing how often foreign peoples, when helped by their host countries, turn on their benefactors and plot against them. This is applied to Haman, here said to be a Macedonian rather than a Persian, whose plot is explained as part of a scheme to transfer the kingdom to the Macedonians. This origin for Haman may share a link with Midrashim about Haman's military history. It also may express some anti-Alexander sentiment, possibly linked with the Maccabean Revolution, as he was a Macedonian. This is contrasted with the Jews, who, despite being foreigners, are said to only aid their host countries with their success. This letter instructs the Persians to disregard any letters sent by Haman, let the Jews follow their own laws, and help them in the coming battle. It also establishes the holiday of Purim, making the connection implied in the original text more explicit. This addition, as well as the previous decree of Haman, was likely composed in Alexandria specifically to rebut criticisms of the diaspora community and address Alexandrian Jews, a theme common in Hellenistic Jewish literature. The final edition is an epilogue and was almost certainly composed along with the prologue. Mordechai reflects how everything in his dream occurred and therefore was from God. He and Haman are the two dragons preparing to fight, the river that brought light was Esther becoming the queen, and the righteous nation being threatened by the hostile nations was of course the Jews. He appreciates God's actions and reiterates the celebration of Purim. This final edition once again serves to tie the book closer to God. There's also a brief postscript about the translation of this version in the Septuagint. It was translated by one Lysigmachus of Jerusalem and brought to Egypt in the fourth year of Ptolemy and Cleopatra. This is occasionally used to try to date the text, however, this is met with some difficulty as there were multiple Ptolemy and Cleopatras of Hellenistic Alexandria. And so concludes this episode of the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. If you enjoyed it, consider recommending it to someone who may find it interesting, and come back next month for Parabiblica for the Perplexed, Lives of the Prophets.